Here at Just Baseball, we have teamed up with BetMGM for the 2023 MLB season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use code JUSTBASEBALL, and you will get up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Step number one, download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code JUSTBASEBALL. Step number two, deposit at least $10 and place your first wager on any game. Step number three, you will receive up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your bet loses. Just make sure you use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL when you sign up. Disclaimer, 21 plus to wager. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in Washington, D.C., Mississippi, Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, Washington, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada. Call 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. Call 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. Call 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and get your $1,000 first bet offer today. This is the Just Baseball Show presented by BetMGM. Use promo code JUSTBASEBALL, all caps, one word, for a risk-free bet up to $1,000 on any major league bet and bet with the king of sportsbooks. New week, Walker Bueller talking. Um, I mean, DeGrom with his second TJ on the horizon, which is tough. We're also going to talk curveballs. Uh, I think some shoes. I want to bring up shoes because we saw a yeah. collection. Crazy. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Uh, we we hung out a little bit after the call a couple weeks ago, uh, after we, we recorded with Walker. And he uh, ha- just had like a litany of boxes in the background of, of shoe boxes, and I was like, asked the stupid question of, yeah, are, are you are you are you sneakerhead? And he's like, what does it look like? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's fair. But I used to be like, I went through that phase in high school. I was really into not just Jordan's really any basketball shoes. So I'm excited to see what, what Walker's forte is there and what he's into, because I was all over the place. I really loved it. I kept a couple of my favorites, uh, but I can definitely still geek out about, uh, about basketball shoes. So for me, it wasn't the Jays. It was like some of the other ones. Like I knew, I knew what all the LeBrons looked like, which was really weird because nobody. Yeah, I liked the LeBrons a lot. No, those were, those were nice. KDs, the KD fours were like one of my first shoes. I really, really, really loved the KD Galaxy 4s that glowed yeah. in the dark. I thought that was the coolest shit in the world. Like, I yeah. was really in on those. Foam posits were ugly, but there was something about them being like a canvas of a shoe. Like, the, the Galaxy Foams, those were cool. Like, I, I went through all of that hype beast phase, but it was it was, it was was one of my favorite times. 
So when Iman Shumpert first broke into the league, he wore foam posits. And Iman went to Oak Park and River Forest High School, which is your boys' alma mater as well. So I was all the way in on the foam posits. I was like, those are so cool. I never purchased any of them. I just had the, the crappy new balances like everybody else because I didn't really care. But um, I loved him. And I still have the crappy new balances. Haters. We're going to talk Ellie De La Cruz. We want Walker Bueller's thoughts on Ellie De La Cruz. This guy's an absolute freak show. Also, at the end of the pot, I'm going to ask you who you think the best pitcher in baseball is because I staked my claim uh, on just baseball.com late last week. Rare Jack article. Definitely check that out. Um, Jack made his Shane McClanahan, Shane McClanahan case. Jeez, I'm so tired. I'll explain why in a second. He made his Shane McClanahan case as the best pitcher in baseball. I'll let him do that. But whenever Jack gets around to writing, it never disappoints. So go check that out. I, before we dive into this, I'm down in South Florida. Yeah. Usually people that watch on YouTube can tell by the background because I'm in an office. It's just way nicer than anything. It's my mom's obviously way nicer than anything I, I should have. It's back to the New York little, little cubby hole when I get back, yeah. but got to go to, to two championship series games. I went to the heat NBA finals. I went to the Stanley cup, both L's for my teams. I encouraged everybody to parlay. You know, the, the opposite team, the Nuggets and the Golden Knights before I came down here, that would have absolutely cashed out. I've been to four postseason games uh, for the Heat this 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 postseason. They're 0-4. Now I've been to a Stanley Cup game they lost. So 0-5 for my teams as I've attended postseason games so far this year. I'm extremely tired, too, because it's the only time I've been to that stadium over there in Sunrise, Florida, where it's packed and takes a long time to get back. Yeah. Uh, definitely had a couple extra beers to cope and uh, did not sleep well. So I am not recovering the same way I used to, and neither are my teams. They're both down 3-1. So I've got nuggets in six because that fucking Corgi told me to. Um, do you think Miami wins game five? Jimmy Butler doesn't look right. You could really see it in person. Um, I think they could shoot the lights out and steal one more. They stole one in, in Denver. So I, I could see six because of that stupid dog. Uh, and then and then the Panthers. I have way more faith in the Panthers, to be honest, than than the, the Heat. I think the Heat are just blatantly overmatched. But it, it, this is a baseball town anyways now. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So Luisa Rice is just a couple ticks under 400 right now. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking – 371 with a 946 OPS at year's end. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like, I wanted to start to get like conceptualize what we actually think this guy's going to do uh, because it's getting to the point now where it's like, I, I'm kind of just waiting for him to normalize. And he went through that little mini slump and then he just went crazy again and went right yeah. back over 400. So I think it's pretty clear that he is going to be well over 350, I think, unless something he gets hurt, God forbid, or something weird. I, I really think 370 sounds about right, which if you think about it, I don't know what we have in front of us in terms of like when the last time someone's done that, would it, would it be Todd Helton? Am I forgetting somebody? Would Todd Helton be the most recent 370 guy? Which again, right wh now. who's the most recent non-cores guy? Would it be like Ichiro hitting 350 something? I, it's been a while since I've really delved into batting averages and it's pretty cool. Luis Arias is making batting average cool again, which is good. It, I think that's good because in a way he's slugging too. He's still getting the doubles. Even without the home runs, he's got the OPS in the high 800s, flirting with 900, depending on what day you check in. That's that's just unbelievably fun. Yeah, so last guy in the National League to hit over 350 was Chipper Jones in 2008, hit 364, won the batting title. 
Before that, Bonds hit 362 in 2004. Uh, Bonds hit 370 in 2002. Todd Helton hit 372 in 2000. Larry Walker, another Rocky, hit 379 in 1999. I look at the American League here. Um, guys over 350. Last one is Josh Hamilton, Texas Rangers, 359 yeah. in 2010. Maurer hit 365 in 2009. Maglio freaking Ordonez hit 363 in 2007. Criminally underrated player. Uh, well, not criminally because I guess he he took PEDs, but yeah. you know, definitely a guy that you, you look back at the numbers, Maglio, and you're like, whoa, he was that good. Um, that that's that's another one that's crazy, but that puts it in perspective here because. I mean, some of those were relatively recent within the last 20 years, but it really is something that we have not seen in a long time. So it's it's been fun to monitor that. Uh, I think the Marlins in general are like that kind of weird team that breaks your brain. And uh, could you list off the top of your head the top three records in the National League right now? Um, Yeah. Is it the Diamondbacks, Atlanta, and the Marlins? Tied with the Dodgers. Yes. The Marlins are tied with the Dodgers. Yes. If, like, I only know that because I look at the standings every day. But, like, think about that. The Diamondbacks, which is also, like, insane in its own regard. We were yeah. excited about them. We weren't excited about them in, in regards to being we, – we loved their overwin total. We didn't love their World Series bet. Right. Um, and then you look at what the Marlins are doing. Obviously, they, they've got a little bit of luck, and, and there's been some balls bouncing their way and all those good things. But – they have no business being up there. Like that's unbelievably cool. Uh, baseball's in a cool spot because I think a lot of those teams that even we were going to talk about Eli De La Cruz and how he's kind of galvanized these Reds fans in, in this base and kind of made more people tune into Reds baseball. I feel like baseball. And I say, I feel like I've said this the last couple of years and it just continues to trend that way more and more and more aside from Kansas city and Oakland, which Oakland's going to relocate right. um, most likely and Kansas city. I actually will talk a lot about it on the call up. I know it looks horrible at the big league level, but I finally am seeing a tangible change in the pitching development situation there. Uh, we'll break that down in another episode, but I, I can tell you with confidence that they are developing more arms this year so far. They've seen more arms make big strides than maybe the last five years before, and there was a changing of the guard, obviously, in the front office. But back to the main point, I feel like a lot of towns where baseball has been dormant for a while, they have a lot more reasons to watch. You look at the Marlins, even if they fizzle out, there's way more interest around them. Cincinnati yeah. Reds, way more interest around them. The Diamondbacks, way more interest around them. I just feel like baseball has a lot more parity right now. Um, and I hope it stays that way, but it, it is really cool to see. Even the teams we expected to suck, like the Washington Nationals, they're not unwatchable. <laughs> they're not the worst team ever. They just beat the Braves. Yeah, no, I'm having, I'm not having a good time keeping tabs on the Washington Nationals this year, but I'm not having a terrible time. It's like, way better than last year, way quicker than I thought it would be. And think about when James Wood gets there. I'm not saying he's going to have the Ellie De La Cruz effect, but he's no. mashing in double A, one of the best prospects in baseball. That guy could get up by the end of the year. Now we're having a little bit more fun there too. Yeah, let's let's get to Ellie in a moment. Start with Andrew McCutcheon, who just got his 2,000th career hit. He became the fifth active player to reach that 2,000 hit marker. So he joins Miguel Cabrera, Joey Votto, Nelson Cruz, Elvis Andrews, who did it earlier this year. Quick disclaimer, mm -hmm. Freddie Freeman is 10 away, and Jose Altuve is going to do it this year as well. He's 49 away. So mm -hmm. those two will join. But at this very moment, I sent a text to the Big Just Baseball group. Uh, the combined war of the five active players mm -hmm. with 2,000 hits 
is 0.1. Votto has yet to play a game. Miggy is negative 0.6. Cruz is negative 0.2. Andrews is negative 0.1. And McCutcheon pushes them over the top with 1.0. McCutcheon's actually been good for the Pirates so far this year. Yeah, you know what's interesting is he's fallen off from like it was a it was a premature drop out of the prime like I think we expected McCutcheon to be MVP caliber a little bit longer you look at the the four straight years where he finishes top five in MVP voting that was from his age 25 season to his age 28 season and that was three years in a row where it was finished third one finished third I don't think we were expecting him to slow down so quickly like at age 29. And I think that's where it makes us feel like he's been a little bit more cooked than he is. Because if you look at the numbers year over year over year, last year was his worst season. And it was a 700 OPS where he was actually a really good lefty masher for Milwaukee playing fine defense. But even like these downer years, he's been a solid player. But it it was weird to see him kind of fall off a cliff so quickly from that prime where he was one of the most feared hitters in the game. You know, I I remember going to games as a fan, watching him play against the Marlins. And like, that was the guy I didn't want to see at at the plate. And man, when he would, he had that explosive rotational power where when he would uncork on one, it would just fly off of his bat. And I think that was part of the reason why we saw him fall off a little bit quickly. It was a very athletic swing. Um, It's a very, it was a very explosive almost like he was jumping and turning at the same time sometimes when he would turn on those inside pitches. And I think as he slowed down a little bit, he just didn't have the same level of power. But to your point, like he's been good. And I think he's not like, he's made it clear. This is not this like swan song one year I'm done kind of deal. And he's backing it up. He might give you, if you're pirates fans, like he might give them a couple good years here of a solid, solid play mid seven hundreds. He's over 800 right now, but yep. mid seven, high seven hundreds OPS and just be a solid role player for a couple extra years. Yeah. So 804 OPS, he's hitting 264. He's got eight bombs. He's seven for nine in the stolen base department. He's playing decent defense when he's in the field. He's getting more days off uh, than of course he did in his mid twenties in Pittsburgh. Uh, but he hasn't been a liability whatsoever and he can play a good corner. Now he's not, you know, the the center fielder that he was in the MVP and the gold glove winner and the silver slugger winner and all that. But McCutcheon is still a good player. He's a career 277 hitter. He's got a career 837 OPS. I was looking at career war because naturally when we have these conversations, you think, all right, what's the hall of fame case? 56 career war. I don't think McCutcheon's a hall of famer. I can tell you one thing for sure. That 22 is going up at PNC Park quicker oh, than you can yeah. fucking blink. Oh, yeah. And that's what that. Oh, geez. Voice crack. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the, the cool thing is about it is that he didn't just do this like circle back. I go back to Pittsburgh and it's like, oof, he's tough to watch, but it's cool to see him in, you know, in, in the jersey again. Right. It's not like that. It's 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 kind of a nice thing here where he is bolstering his career numbers a little bit. He's hitting the leadoff for a team over 500. He might go 2020 this year. (laughs) There's nothing I want more than for him to find a way to go 2020. Seven stolen bases, eight home runs. You mentioned he's not playing every single day, but he's got a crack at it. If he, if he can kind of keep this rolling, I, I think he finishes. I think he gives you a couple more decent years. He'll finish with more than 300 home runs. He'll finish with probably around 2,200 hits, maybe 2,300 hits, and presumably 50 war. That is like 
the top of hollow very good in my opinion like i don't know if we could like create like a a graphic like a meter right, right. And if 10 is hall of fame like he is pretty darn close like he's a good eight five i think right. on that scale almost a pushing towards a nine and with a few good years like in in this capacity i think he's a solid nine like which means you're a full notch shy but just one of the better hollow very good guys i would love to compare him to like chase utley Right. Better career than Chase Utley. Chase Utley's a Hall of Very Good guy. Um, it, it's it's really close. If he could have given one or two more seasons of that prime, I think one more top five MVP finish, maybe two more top M- five MVP finishes, I do think he gets in. But ultimately, what a career this guy's had, and also off the field, it seems like no everybody has nothing but fantastic things to say about this dude. Yeah. No, I mean, I've heard not a negative word and it, it, it helps being with the Pirates AAA affiliate because obviously that's where his best years have come. But everybody welcomed this dude back with open arms like he oh, is yeah. a beloved adopted son of the city of Pittsburgh, which is really exciting. So I'm here for it. I just looked at Utley. McCutcheon has more hits than Utley. Uh, McCutcheon has a bit higher of an OPS, but he trails Utley by about eight war. Um he probably doesn't have eight war left in the tank. Probably not. So I don't know. Um, all right, let's jump to Ellie De La Cruz here. Ellie threw his first six games in Major League Baseball. It's eight for 22. So if you want to attach a batting average to it, hitting 364. He's got five walks in his first six games. He's showing a little bit of patience. He's got a 481 OBP in his first six games. Slugging 636, he's got a double, a triple, a homer, four RBIs. He's three for three in the stolen base department. He scored seven runs in six games. Mm -hmm. He struck out 10 times in 27 plate appearances. And the thing that I say to that is, seems like nobody cares. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I do see some like old guys in the replies are like, slow your roll. He's striking out a lot. And look, there will be be a point in time where Ellie De La Cruz struggles. I unfortunately like that will come the difference is when he struggles he'll chop one in the ground and beat it out he will still crush a mistake 480 feet maybe he won't have a multi-hit game and then another multi-hit game and then another multi-hit game but part of the reason why ellie de la cruz is i think so special and we're seeing this now he bet he beat out a ground ball today as we're recording this to first base it was a chopper to first base and he beat it out that's what this dude does so even when he's not going right He's going to steal those hits. And then you mentioned a really important wrinkle here too, taking more walks. Pitchers are already being careful with them, with him. And that's something that he'll be able to do. So walks, stealing hits, even when he slumps, he's a guy that's going to remain productive. And people don't like to point towards runs as a stat that you can control much of. And I agree with, with it to a, to a degree with certain players. Ellie De La Cruz would be the number one rebuttal to that argument, though, because that guy has manufactured runs by himself pretty much several times already through the last few games. And that is something that I think you have to look at runs scored with a guy like Ellie De La Cruz because he is scoring those runs. No, very Maybe almost nobody else in baseball, one or two other guys, are scoring runs in the same exact situations that he was in where he was able to score. Okay, so I've got a tweet that corresponds with that exactly. C. Trent Rosecrans is the beat writer for the Reds on The Athletic. He tweeted this on Sunday oh, and afternoon. That's Kirk Herbstreet's friend, right? That's Kirk Herbstreet's mortal enemy, C. Trent Rosecrans. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, he said this. 
when Billy Hamilton was a red, we'd always joke about Billy runs, runs that were created because of Billy's <laughs> speed. No, way. Ellie De La Cruz just had a Billy run, a walk, advanced to second on a ground out, a pass ball, and then scores on a fielder's choice with a great slide. Reds lead four to three. That's so crazy. Which I follow C track. Also, great follow to keep up with red stuff, especially Ellie stuff. That's hilarious. I, I didn't even see that. But yeah, it's like an Ellie run. It's yeah. it, now it's an Ellie run. And I, I agree a wholeheartedly. It should almost be its own statistic. Right. And, and this from JJ Cooper, who's the editor in chief of Baseball America, just like citing something else here. Ellie De La Cruz has played six games. He's got the two hardest hit baseballs by a Reds player this year. It was his homer and his double. He has the six fastest sprint speeds recorded by any Reds player this year. He has the fastest recorded infield throw by any player in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I mean, that's – do you remember, I believe it was – It's probably it was over a year and change ago now when we were talking about him with Ellie De La Cruz, and I said, like, Ellie De La Cruz is everything that Jason Dominguez is supposed to be. And I wasn't saying that in a way to be negative towards Jason Dominguez. It was like this mythological creature – that we made Jason Dominguez out to be, which he is a freak. Don't get me yeah. wrong, but he's not the fastest man in the world, the hardest hitting, uh, you know, position player in the world and all of those things. Like he, he is very high on the scales of each tool, but it wasn't the way that they were making it out to be. Ellie Dela Cruz was, was that like Ellie Dela Cruz is that mythical creature that's off the charts in every single tool. And we're seeing that now. Um, so that's pretty cool. Again, I, I am just so excited for Reds baseball. I'm yep. really enjoying the Reds. They're playing good ball too. They're not slowing down. It's it's been pretty amazing. I think they won again today, right? So it, it's been pretty cool to see the Reds playing good ball. Andrew Abbott up now. We talked about how that was going to be something that could help them. He turned down another good start. We'll see when they get Lodolo back. I ask you, like with with Ellie up now, with Encarnacion Strand seeming like he's knocking on the door in AAA. If, if you're not familiar with with the Reds farm system. Go check out that guy's numbers. Insane power, insane, insane juice. And he's hitting over 360. That guy gets up. You get Lodolo back. Could this team sneak, like sneakily hang around and play meaningful games in, in August, September? So they could. The way that I view the Reds this year is a 2K team. A, much like how I viewed, I think, the Diamondbacks coming into this year, and that's actually yeah. resulted in the leaders in the NL West. I thought that this was going to be a fun team. I didn't know how good they were going to be. But I look at Ellie. I look at Christian Encarnacion Strand. You know, if you're if you're playing MLB The Show, you can choose Abbott, Lodolo, Green. You're going to be really happy. Matt McClain is fucking awesome oh, right awesome. now. So, like, I think there's a lot of fun here. Do I think that that much youth correlates to wins and contending in a division typically not but i think you'll get some games where you get that glimpse of what's to come and i think that there is something really special to come in cincinnati i i brought that question up specifically because the brewers just really struggled with the oakland a's the pirates they're they're hanging around they look good but at the end of the day you know i don't think the pirates are that different than the cincinnati reds no not at all and it, it it's it's open in the reds they've said nick crawl said hey we'll consider buying a lot of people are like oh we'll, we'll believe it when we see it i yeah. think buying control can make sense here with the just ridiculous amount of middle infielders they have from top to bottom you know yeah. all the way going into their deeper into their lower levels of their system if there's an opportunity there to make the team better now and in the future 
this Reds team could could kind of hang around this year. I don't think that they, you know, make the playoffs, obviously, but I do think that they will be playing games that matter in August uh, and, and maybe even late into August. Yeah. And matters a relative term to me. If you're within five games of a playoff spot in August, your games matter. And I think that's all Reds fans could have hoped for going into this year. I think you've got to be ecstatic with that, knowing that it's going to get even better next year. And hopefully they'll spend a few bucks and and add a couple veterans to the fold. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm loving what's happening over there in Cincinnati. And again, that, that kind of just highlights what we're talking about, where baseball is just better in a lot of areas that it hasn't been in a while. Real quick, what do you think they buy? Immediate That's, follow-up. Do you think Tyler Stevenson is the long-term answer? No, no, I, I really don't. That 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 might actually be like the the answer to the question. Maybe they buy at a position where another team has a surplus. I this sounds like a crappy buy here, but just off of the top of my head, why not give Joey Bart a shot? It looks like the Giants don't have interest in Joey Bart. Maybe maybe that's not the most exciting move in the world, but I don't think Stevenson is good defensively. He can't stay healthy. They're hoping that not keeping him behind the dish will help him be better offensively. Kirk Casale has been one of the worst qualified hitters in baseball. Joey Bart in that stadium, he might he might just run, he might be Mike Zanino type. You know, he might he'll run into enough home runs. That's just one example off the top of my head. I think there's a catcher out there with some control that they could go out and get. Um, I don't think that they should aggressively buy, though. I think that they should want to do one of those deals, like my failed guy for your failed guy, Barrero for Bart type of thing. Yeah. I wouldn't do anything crazy, but I'd do something that helps you a little bit now uh, with, with eyes more on next year. Here's one for you. Elias Diaz is making, what, five and a half this year. He makes six next year, then he's off the books. Yeah, that's another one. No brainer. And, and you know, you have the concern taking him out of course. Well, you know, well, he gets to stay in great. He goes to the second hitter now. friendly ballpark. Yeah. yeah. And, and he's fine away from course. That's another one. That's great. And you can throw a couple prospects that way that doesn't really impact your system. And yeah. you can feel pretty good about it again. Like Barrero, I'd be dangling that guy. They, they should have interest in him. If you're the Rockies, like that's a guy that could put it together out there. We're doing so much Reds talk on the Just Baseball show over the last week or so. I know it's too much. So, I hope I hope people aren't annoyed by that. But I love it. I think the Reds are kind of the talk of the town right now with Ellie De La Cruz. So we can they lean into be. it for a week. Um, real quick, you mentioned the Pirates. My guy, Osvaldo Beto, is making his big league debut on Wednesday. You see that? Yeah. Beto like getting up. 27-year-old looked like a career minor leaguer. All of a sudden fastballs jumping like crazy sliders good in righty righty matchup so Beto gonna start on Wednesday and that'll be one that I'm watching intently we'll see how he does um but let's talk about the two best teams in baseball real quick before Walker Mm -hmm. Bueller uh Rays Rangers met in St. Pete this weekend Tampa took two or three I'm gonna give you the game by game synopsis the elevator pitch on Mm -hmm. each game that happened. And then I want an overarching series takeaway from you because these were the two 40 win teams in baseball uh, that met up in St. Pete on Terra uh, on Friday, Tampa won eight, three Isak Paredes drove in six of the eight runs. He had two homers. Tyler glass now went six innings, a one hit ball. Only hit was a solo shot from Leody Tavares Saturday. Texas evens eight, four Yavaldi got his ninth win, but he and Taj Bradley kind of fought themselves command wise. Yavaldi walked three Bradley walked four and three and a third Corey Seager had four driven in a two run double and a two run Homer. So that was the offense. Texas evens Tampa wins the series on Sunday, seven, three McClanahan mediocre start by his standards. I guess 
it was a good start. Seven innings, four hits, three earned, struck out five, walked one. Martin Perez ambushed 10 hits, seven earned in three and a third. So this was a much higher scoring series than I anticipated. I think the Tampa yeah. offense just proved that they can hang with the other best offense in baseball. Yeah, I, and I think that I don't like to draw you know overreactions, I think, from, from one series. And obviously this is fluid and will change, but – if I had to have one takeaway from this series thus far between those two teams, it's that the Rays are the more complete team right now. You mentioned the Rangers are that team that you think maybe can outslug anybody, and that's the way that that they'll win ball games against other juggernaut teams. But the Rays can match up with anybody because they have different dudes that that just step up in the right spots. I mean, we got to put some respect on Isak Peretti's name, but how about just the rest of the lineup? There's not really a break. We talk about the star power of, of what the Texas Rangers have uh, with Semi and Seager and, and even Josh Young, and we can go through that. But yeah. similarly, the Rays, they can platoon, they can set things up, they can match match up really well, but there's really no break through that lineup too. There's speed. They don't strike out as much as I thought they would, and it's a combination of the power, the speed. I, I think the situational hitting stands out to me too because – you have guys like Yadi Diaz. You got guys like Wander Franco who give you good at bats. It's not just guys leaving the yard at any point. It's guys yeah. that can just put bat on ball. They're not. They're not going to you know just roll over to third base with a guy on second base and and no outs. We look at from top to bottom here. It's just a really well rounded and balanced lineup. And then you look at the pitching side rotation. It's it's just up there with anybody. And then the bullpen, obviously, is always going to be solid as can be. The Rays are the best team in baseball, right? Like that, I think this just really solidified it in this series, though. The Rangers, you, they play seven games here. I wouldn't be shocked if they beat them in a seven game series either. So I'm excited. I hope these guys I hope these two teams kind of match up in the playoffs at some point. Yeah, I I would love if this was an ALCS preview. I love the lineup point that you just made because I think the Rays lineup is similarly structured to that of Texas and the FAN rant that we heard earlier this year where Taylor Walls and Christian Bethencourt are hitting better than their batting cards or uh, baseball cards is, is bullshit. But it's also what Texas is doing. Ezekiel Duran, we knew could be good. Is he going to be this good? I don't know. Was he? Was Jonah Heim going to be this good? I don't know. Was he? Their star power, Franco, Arena, Yandy Diaz, Brandon Lau, those guys are stars, whether you like it or not. Texas, they've got their stars, but it's these complimentary pieces, right? Like Haim has a six RBI day. You know, you just chalk it up this year as like, oh, that's the Rangers offense. Isak Paredes has a six RBI day. I view those guys in similar lights right now. So that's just kind of Absolutely. how I go about it. One last thing that really stands out to me, kind of reminiscent of, of that magical Giants team. With, with with the Rays specifically is you got six guys with double digit homers. That that's that's the thing that really really stands out to me. And you got a lot of different guys with power on this Rangers team. Yeah, but you've only got two guys with double digit homers. You've got one other guy that's knocking on the door with, in Marcus Semien. But to have six dudes on this Rays team with ten plus homers already, it, that's something to me too. That's just there's so many different players that can get you with one swing of the bat that's that's pretty hard to find and and that's another reason why i think this team's really good but to your point the rangers have a lot of those plug and play role player guys that are stepping up and i actually think ezekiel duran's going to maintain this i do think jonah heim is a high 700 ops catcher now which is phenomenal for a catcher especially when you're getting the defensive production that you get from him 
And I think Leody Tavares has finally figured something out. This guy was a top prospect for a long time. Feels like he's ancient. He's 24. It looks like something finally clicked there. Similar to the Rays, ancient prospect who's way younger than you think he is, Jose Siri. Yeah. I believe that he has found something as well with your guy there in Jose Siri. So these teams are very similar, which is very funny because you wouldn't have thought that going into the year. Yeah. Uh, Walker Bueller, in a moment, I've been comfy as shit for this entire intro have you gotten your homage merch yet yeah i did i did it's it's so soft inside dude it's so soft the shirt is crazy the hoodie is awesome we've got some great stuff coming up with homage so just a quick plug go check out their stuff because it's actually awesome if you need any apparel uh they have baseball they have other stuff uh but we've got a lot more exciting stuff coming with homage yes does that link in the description yeah i'll throw it in the description nice okay cool now Walker Bueller. Week seven with Walker Bueller. We're going to talk Bobby Miller. We're going to talk Ellie De La Cruz, and we're going to talk curveballs. I've got a really good video, man, and I, I think I kind of chef this one up. It's going to be elite. Like New bourbon, but before we get to the bourbon, we learned something about you a couple weeks ago. You're a big shoe guy. Yeah. How did that start? Because I know Arm was a big shoe guy, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I don't know. I mean, we've kind of talked through my bourbon stuff and, and all of that. I, I think collecting certain things that are hard to get is something that I've kind of fallen in love with forever. I, I never really, you know what? I had one baseball card growing up. One of my mom's family friends was a big collector and he gave me a baseball card and we moved houses and I lost it in the move. So I think that soured me to baseball cards and I think I've moved on to, to bourbon and shoes, but um no, obviously being a, a Nike athlete for my whole career has been uh, was kind of one of those dream dream come true deals. But um, yeah, they they take pretty good care of me. I, I never noticed. It, now now I'm going to start looking out for it. W- were you ever a uh, basketball shoes into cleats kind of guy, or is it hard as a pitcher? Like, or do those not play the same way? Yeah. So my rookie year, I wore a pair. Of, well, my first September, and then a lot of my rookie year, I wore a pair of Kyrie's that were made into cleats and. Um, I just ID'd them and, and wore the same pair every year, but or all year. Um, but then, you know, I had a good year in LA and, and re-upped my Nike deal. And, and luckily, you know, fortunately, they gave me what's called an SMU. So I got a special makeup. So um, next time I'm in Lexington, we can run through them all. But I get to design my own two pairs of cleats every year, which is about as cool as it gets. Oh, that, that is absolutely unreal. Yeah. <laughs> what's on your checklist when when you're designing your cleats? Like, Obviously, they need to look sick, but but what goes into them? High tops? Um, yeah, I've worn high tops this year. Actually, I, I made a I made two pairs of low tops. I'd never done it before, but um, yeah, I typically wear high tops. What I'll do is I'll just all year I kind of save stuff on StockX or Goat or whatever. Usually Goat um, and kind of inspirational stuff of of what I want to try and do. And um, a lot of times it comes out of stuff that's not even like our colors. So I'll just try and figure out what I can make kind of a Dodger version of or an on-field version of. And and then I have a really good buddy who's huge in the shoe deal. They call him the shoe surgeon. Um, I usually will send him like four or five different ideas and he'll mock them up for me. And, and then I send him a Nike and, and we figure it out. That's so sick. All right. What are we drinking? Is there anyone tonight? else? Oh, yeah. Go for it. Sorry, I was lagging on my end a no, little no, bit. No. I was going to ask if there's anyone else on the uh... – on the Dodgers with uh, a comparable shoe game that, that you can think of or that you know uh, about. Yeah, there's some guys. Jock Peterson was big into it. Um, 
Ah, you know, kind of always run back, forth, back and forth. Trace Thompson does a pretty good job. He's a little more um, selective. I think his whole family being basketball players, they, they have a lot of shoes going on <laughs> over there. But, um, no, Trace and I talk through it a lot. And then Austin Barnes tries a little bit, but he wears my cleats, which is like the coolest thing ever when, when I throw it to him. We have the same cleats on. So we're just the only ones that wear a size 10. <laughs> I love that. So a Clay Thompson doesn't supply Trace with some Antas or anything? You haven't seen an Anta they, uh, they don't have Anta baseball cleats yet. I'm, I'm surprised. Hey, we, we just found a niche that, that Trace <laughs> needs to go after. All right, what are we drinking? Well, this week we went with Bell Mead. It's a sour mash from Nashville, actually. So kind of my second home. Um, sour mashes are a little different. I'm going to botch exactly how. So I can read on the back, see if it tells us. Uh, but no, the, the sour mash refers to they kind of use the, you know, all the shit that they put in there to make the bourbon the first time. They reintroduce it later, if I'm not mistaken, and kind of re-ferment it a little bit, and it just comes out a little bit, little bit different. Um, this is probably my favorite sour mash one. They're typically not my favorite, but you know, as we're going on this show, I'm trying to you know show you guys around the world of bourbon, so. Uh, this is a good one and, and from Nashville. So sour, something about the word sour when it comes to alcohol always kind of just makes me a little nervous. Yeah, but I it's, think, it's not I think really it like refers, a sour. It refers to like it's been used, right? So like it's been used, so it's now sour because it's fermented. Used used drink doesn't make me feel much better either. I, I know what you're saying, <laughs> but it's like uh, – like, can you explain that? I am such a novice. Think of it, it, um, through the process multiple times. Is that? Yeah. So of think of it like a sourdough bread where they use like a starter. Yeah. That makes sense. Gotcha. So it kind of accelerates the mash and makes it, it changes the flavor of it a little bit. Like they'll take it, they'll, they'll make a whole, you know, thing of bourbon and then they'll take it and put it in the new one. So it kind of gets the fermenting going a little bit better. I think is my understanding. Okay, so now that the first sip's down, we can talk about the freak show in Cincinnati. I'm sure you're watching wow. Ellie De La Cruz highlights. Crazy. I'm watching Ellie De La Cruz highlights. When you watch that guy, what goes through your mind? You know what's funny about it? I think if we would, if he would have debuted two years ago, we would have said we've never seen anything like it. Um, but the shortstop in Pittsburgh is is about as close as as you can get. And it's funny because I I played with. I didn't play with him, but I was around when O'Neill Cruz was a Dodger. Yeah. So I've seen that. I've seen that thing in person. And uh, he's O'Neill is an incredible player and incredibly talented. But this, the LA kid seems he's just got a little more um, polish to him already on, on top of all these tools. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty special to watch this kid. So that's the thing, jumping in real quick about O'Neill. Um, being in Indy, I got O'Neill Cruz for two months last year. Yeah. Like I was watching this guy on a day-to-day basis. And the highlights are awesome. The highlights are something that every baseball fan, every non-baseball fan can get behind. But it's what you see on a daily basis and, and how the six to three put out looks so freaking cool, dude. Yeah. I mean, it, it's everything that cut of human being does that is just exceptional. Yeah. And, and you're probably captivated by it when you're watching yeah i mean there's certain players obviously you know the latin players seem to have a kind of a flair or um a kind of a little different fun to the way they play but you know i play with some guys that that make those normal plays look really cool machado is one of those guys and 
even Corey Seager to me was one of those guys that the simplicity in which, you know, he made high level plays is something that um, I think as a, as a player, you, you learn to really uh, grow in love, right? Like it's, it's easy to watch the Jeter play and the jump throw and all that. But I think as a player for me, having a guy on my team, like how simple can you make the hard plays is, is probably the biggest barrier for, um, how much we trust the ball in your hand. And um, De La Cruz seems to have that at a pretty young age. You watch, you know, young guys can always make the highlight plays and athletic and young and every play is live or die. But, uh, you know, even the plays the first couple of days, he missed the first ball to him. And then after that, it was kind of smooth sailing. And I know he's got like a 98 mile an hour arm or whatever. And, and I did see, you know, his first like four throws were all 88. So there's some sort of, tempering the gas pedal that he has at 20 years old or whatever he is. That's, that's pretty special. So as someone that's, you've played obviously at a high level in college against a lot of great competition there. And then you get to pro ball where I feel like it's just endless. The amount of talent, it feels like you can just continue whenever I'm able to get out to a minor league ballpark. I feel like I always catch somebody. And I'm like, wow, didn't know that guy was that good. Mm-hmm. And I think Ellie De La Cruz and O'Neill Cruz are excellent examples of that because Ellie De La Cruz signs for $65,000. Right. Most people weren't really paying attention to him in the first couple of years of his professional career. O'Neill Cruz, as Dodgers fans do not like to be reminded of, was kind of <laughs> traded in a smaller, don't even worry about it type of deal and blossomed into what we now see today. How, how often do you feel like there are players that are, are just – overlooked i guess for, for lack of a better way to phrase the question but it's just amazing to me how much talent there is throughout the minor leagues like how many times you were playing through the minors i know you climbed quickly so you might not have as much of a sample size mm-hmm. where you felt like wow there's this guy's way better than people may think or i don't know if the team even knows how good this guy might be do you feel like that happens more often than than we might think or is this a little bit of confirmation bias with two freaks recently coming up yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of a two-pronged question, right? The the Latin the way the Latin American system works is just so different, right? So you're you're evaluating kids at 16. I wasn't even probably the best player on my high school team at 16. So there there's a there's a thing that happens when you you learn how to work out, your body develops, you fill out whatever you know. Even I'm almost 29. I've gained 12 pounds in the past three months, and don't feel like I've really changed when I'm doing that much. I just kind of filled out a little bit. So to evaluate people at 15, 16, 17 years old, yeah, things, things change. Right. And, and, you know, I, I know in the CBA, there's a lot of talk about Latin American draft and things like that. And, you know, I, I think it is interesting I, as the system stands right now, you're going to get these guys that are not paid much and then end up being freaks. And you're going to get a lot of these players that are $4 million, you know, 16 year olds signing out of Latin America that are going to fizzle out. Not all of them, but certainly some of them, because, you know, there were players at 16, year, 16 years old that were, were incredible. And I remember seeing them like, oh, my, like, I've never seen anything like this. And then you fast forward and they're 22 and they're on a baseball. And, and so, you know, the, the college track kind of, you know, you talk to a scout or for an office, like the floor is kind of established on much, most college guys. And I think the system as it lays now, like you're, you're spending money kind of without any floor, right? You're, you're yeah. paying a 16-year-old kid. You don't know the floor and you don't know the ceiling. So, uh, you know, Mike Trout was a late first-round pick, not an early. You know, just things happen and and uh, it's kind of interesting. Well, and, and you're forced into an early decision that is 
a big financial commitment, right? You see some of these five million, five and a half million dollar international free agents. Dylan Cruz is going to get eight, but then you drop to six or seven in this draft. You can still go with a college arm or a college bat, and they're making the same money as the marquee sixteen year olds when they're what, five years older than them. They're twenty one years old, right? The but also the, the investment side of the player, right? If if you're if you're Dylan, or well, say you're Paul Skeens, right? He's right. going to get six million. The, the assumption is that he's going to be making seven fifty in two years, right? Yeah. Where these Latin players sign that, and then their agent system is drastically different than ours, um, and that that kid's probably going to be in the Dominican for two years, the minor leagues for three, and then he's twenty one and he got there quick. But that's five years, right? Yeah. So you're you're kind of you know it's just the way that it works now, but it's also drastically different, right? I had a Tommy John and and was drafted in fifteen in the big leagues at seventeen. You know, this schemes kid, the assumption is he'll beat that, right? He's not going to, you know, he doesn't need Tommy John in the draft like I did. Like, he, he should be in the big leagues quickly and be making life-changing money kind of from the start, especially with this, the increase in the minimum. Yeah. So that brings up an interesting thought that I have with, with college arms. And I know Arm and I have talked about that before. You know, a Reed Detmers drafted in 20, debuting in 21. Mm-hmm. That's a year. How quickly you feel like you can push college arms that seem like they're ready to go? Yeah, I, you know, I think the the scariest recent case study of it is one of my best friends in the world, Carson Fulmer, and and him getting pushed the way that he did. Um, I think in conversations with him and at least being very close with him, I, I know the White Sox were trying to tweak some stuff that he was doing. Um, I, you know, I think that's a horrible idea. Obviously, the way that it has turned out in terms of how successful Carson is and was and, and could be. Um, the, the thing is that an organization has to be confident enough in their scouting department and confident enough in their player development to kind of hands off certain guys. Um, you know, I remember coming back from my first Tommy John and asking our rehab throwing guy, like my second bullpen, like, what do you got? Like, I like to be coached. I love to be coached. It's one of my, because to me, I'm just looking for the, the same like core principles of how to throw a baseball leverage and this and that. And I want as many ways to describe it as I can, because in certain situations or certain days, maybe one cue works and one doesn't. So I'm trying to amass those cues mm-hmm. and I wanted to be coach. And he was like, listen, man, we drafted you, you know, where we did and you were hurt. Like I'm not touching you. I'm not telling you anything, but it probably let me be, myself when I got there and to kind of own my delivery and own my career. And um, nobody tried to kind of put their thumbprint on me, which, which happens and it's kind of sad. So um, I think college arms, if you're drafting them in the top five rounds, like, you know, help them improve their strengths and work on their weaknesses. But, you know, they've been coached hard for three years and in a competitive environment, like, they're, they're not the same as a 19-year-old kid that's drafted out of high school who you don't know who's been coaching them, who's had their hands on them, um, and you're kind of drafting them off potential. Like, you've got to build potential. But if you're drafting a kid off his floor, the moment you start tweaking him, that floor can drop. And, and so, for me, it's it's draft the big boy Friday night starter or Saturday starter. Or I should I was a Sunday starter. And, you know, let him go be him and see if it works. If it doesn't, fix it. 
but until they fail, I, I think it's kind of let them roll. So what's the biggest, I guess, drawback of, of pushing a college arm or, or any arm for that, for that matter too quickly uh, outside of the, the confidence side of it, if they struggle? Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest one for me. You know, certain programs kind of breed true confidence. And we talked a lot about that in, in college and, and learning your own process, owning it, owning what you do, understanding what you do. And if you go to certain programs, and, and I don't want to name any names, but there are certain programs that, that it's about having cool cleats and, and really cool gear. And, and like, that that's just not how you earn that kind of thing when when you give up four runs in Clinton, Iowa and Loa. Like, that, <laughs> that shirt is not going to help you, right? So I think – I think there are certain programs that you can really push guys. And I think there are certain programs that you have to continue to coach them. And, and I think, you know, I think Jack Leiter is a great example. I think Texas is doing some great things because Jack really didn't do very well last year yeah. per his kind of track record. And, and now he's come back. He had an off season. I don't know where he goes. I don't know if he was in Nashville, but wherever he was, it kind of got him back centered and, and he seems to have kind of figured it out a little bit. Been awesome. Yeah, he's been great, and I, I think that confidence of what he's doing—he doesn't look any different. It's not like he's doing anything crazy different. It's just the fastball's better. Maybe he got some strength. Maybe he learned, you know, certain things about pro ball versus college and, and whatever. But um, that—that's a kid that's confident in what he's doing and and who he is. So yeah, let him fail and and let him figure it out on his own. And, and you know what I mean? I just said maybe let a guy fail once, you know, certain programs, certain kids, like you let them fail two, three times. Like you gave that kid a lot of money for what he is. Like you can't keep trying to manipulate him into something that he's not. I'm still hung up on the deep cut of the Clinton lumber Kings. That was crazy dude. (laughs) nuts. Um, I want to talk about Bobby Miller, your Dodger teammate. Who's also rocking tight pants. Shout out Bobby Miller. First of all, the fits have been crazy rolling up to these starts. And I've yeah. seen your quote tweets of it. You love the fits. I love the fits. He's throwing the shit out of the ball right now, man. I mean, another great start in Philly this weekend. Right. What are you seeing from Bobby, dude? You know what's interesting is is in double A, I remember talking to people, what's going on with him? And and his heater wasn't kind of playing the way that you would assume it would. And that was kind of the the weird one. Um I think part of this is scouting, right? We just, in the big leagues, you go very in depth and, and you've got three, well, more than that, but in a meeting, my, my pregame meetings are seven people in there. So you think about all of that kind of data and eye tests and all of that. I think what he's doing is he's tightening the slider a little bit. He's throwing a lot of off-speed. He's very rarely going back-to-back heater, which is a big deal. And he's landing stuff. So it's just hard. It's hard to hit. He's throwing really hard. Everything's sharp. Everything has the correct action to it. And he's just a big, strong boy. But I think what's happened is he's making – I wonder if we ran the numbers on runners in scoring position kind of pitch quality – like where that would be compared to runners on. And he's doing a great job of keeping guys off base, but he's seemingly really, really pitching and really, really throwing to spots with runners on. And 
that's a, that's a tough thing to do to kind of switch back and forth. I, I don't think he's trying to do that, but I think it's a really big indicator of, of success in that he has kind of a second gear and, and that gear is not necessarily try and throw this ball harder. It's, it's command it. And that, that's a tough thing to do. And, and something I feel like in certain points in my career, I've been able to do really well. And, and some points I haven't um, just so happens his first four starts of his career, he's done it, you know, extremely well. Um, so, you know, I think, I think everyone's excited. I'm, I'm certainly excited. So his fastball is averaged 99 miles an hour. And <laughs> you talked about just, just now how it wasn't playing up at points the way you would expect a near triple digits and triple digits fastball to play up. Something that stands out to me is you look at the end zone whiff in his four big league starts on the fastball. It's, it's only 7%, but he's pounding the strike zone, hitting his spots with it. And again, it sets up kind of the secondary stuff. How much do you, and maybe it's different pitcher to pitcher, but how much are you looking at the end zone whiff of a, of a fastball? Because obviously that's indicative of quality versus maybe how that sets up the rest of your arsenal when, similar to you, this is a guy that has an assortment of quality secondaries that he can get you out with. Yeah, I, I think for me it was never a super important thing because, number one, the swing and miss I wanted was at the top, and the assumption mm-hmm. is that that's on a strike. Yeah, And I also knew my best fastballs were down away and – when my fastball is good, it's getting taken. Uh, so whiff rate, it, like I don't necessarily always want people to swing at my fastball. Fair. I mean, late in counts, right? But I, I'm a big – I've always been a guy that's oh down away and I want it taken and I want it a strike. Like that's kind of how I navigate at bats the best. And um, so I, I don't know if my whiff rate has ever been great on my fastball. I, I think – or in zone at least, maybe in general, um, just because, it, you know, early in my career it was down way, down way, and I'd shoot balls up. And also, you know, I know it's not that long ago, but it was a little bit different in 2018 than it, than it is now. There's not guys that just – back then it wasn't uh, every fastball you threw at the top. Yeah. And there's guys that are doing that now. And so it's kind of muddied the waters on, on that kind of stuff. But – you know, when I came up, it was still fastballs down in the zone early, up late. Uh, we were kind of figuring out some relievers needed to stay up there. But now it's almost like every reliever is only trying to throw fastballs in the top half. And and so hitters see that a lot. It, it's just a different – it's a different thing now. Game changes quickly. Like, I think that's yeah. something that we've talked about before. And, and I guess – you know, shit, man, we're 25 years old. Like the game has changed a couple times in our time of viewing baseball. Like that's how quickly it changes. Yeah. Um, speaking of the runners and scoring position thing, uh, Bobby's been excellent. Obviously he's been excellent the whole time. Base is empty. Opponents are hitting a buck 67. They're four for 32 against him with runners on and in scoring position, they're one for 13. So he's been excellent. He seems confident as hell. And yeah. like, that's the vibe that you got if you watched him at Louisville. I got that vibe when I watched him in the minor leagues. How confident is this guy on the hill? Um, I think there's there's the cocky thing and there's the confident thing, right? And honestly, that I haven't seen many people work at the same level as him. Just he's pretty meticulous. I don't think um, I don't know how to say this. I, I think he's a lot more intelligent than than people kind of would give him credit for in terms of here's what I need to do. Here's the plan. I'm not going to miss anything. 
Um, he listens really, really well. We went to dinner with, with him and his girlfriend for his dinner and we were just talking and he just kind of absorbed it on, on a night that, you know, I want the guy to have three or four glasses of wine and hang out and have fun and, and enjoy it. Right. And, and if he gets a little reckless, fine, it's his birthday. And, and he wasn't like that at all. And, and it kind of changed, uh, you know, that's how I am and would be, you know what I mean? But um, it, it's just not, he's not exactly the way he comes off and he's really um, confident in, in the work, I think more than anything and, and kind of understands that he's talented and, um, but there's talented and there's working hard. And, and I think he's kind of found that ground of, of working really hard and being confident out of that, as opposed to being confident because I'm talented. It's so cool to me for like the, the generational uh, advice that can be kind of handed down because I look at the team as it's constructed right now, no. you learned so much. I'm sure as you've talked about a little bit with, from Clayton Kershaw, who's going to be a first ballot hall of famer. And, and now what is it like for you to be in a position where it probably feels like you still just got to the big leagues, even though you've had so much success there where you can be someone that, now helps a Bobby Miller, one of the best pitching prospects, is looking to you to, to pick your brain. What is that like in this almost ladder of of advice that can be shared? And also, real quick, might I point out, noted good guy Walker Bueller taking Bobby Miller out to dinner on his birthday. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. There's that mentor thing going on there. Oh, no, it, you know, plenty of people did that shit for me. So, uh, no, I think it's interesting because I think what's funny about that is probably the basis of Kirsch's and I's. Kirsch and I's relationship is that I looked at things very different and very much let him, not let him, it's Clayton Kirk, but we had discussions about like how he went about it. And then as time went on, it just kind of seeped that some of the new age stuff kind of seeped into conversations and I was kind of ready for those conversations. And so I think that's kind of the basis of, whatever respect he and I have in our relationship. Right. And what I don't want to do is ever take a young kid that knows what they, who they are and what they're doing and try and change them. But there's certain things that, you know, I think it, a lot of it comes out of just my size and what I feel like I needed to do to be successful was outsmart people more than, than other people. But I never wanted, I, I never thought of myself as like, the, oh, I know what to throw in every count and I set you up and do all this. I think for me, it was always really understanding what, how to train my body to do what I wanted it to do and my delivery and things like that. So, and then on top of that, I, I kind of have this understanding of pitch characteristics and why what, why what I do works for me, why it wouldn't work for someone else. And I think, um, being able to kind of share that is, has been one of the cooler parts of my career. Uh, even in rehab, we, you know, Ryan Brazier has been, been here with us for a little while and wants to figure out a cutter. And it's like the first day I talked to him, I was like, how do you throw your fastball? And his wrist is in a similar position. It's like, well, you need to be throwing my cut, this, the same cutter that I throw because you're, you're releasing the ball the same way. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be really good for him. It's just, like that stuff is as cool as anything to me. I love that. I love that bullpen type conversation where like you can pick up on other stuff from guys in your staff. And my favorite example of that was when Yavaldi found a different gear in New York because Tanaka taught him that split. 
And like all of a sudden he takes off because Tanaka helpful teammate, like that's transcending what Tanaka can do on the mound because he's helping somebody else. And now 40% of their starts have a great splitter instead of 20. Doesn't show up in the F war there, unfortunately. No, No, but that's kind of the the sad part of the the game now, right? Is that that clubhouse guy is kind of being undervalued. You know, I I think – not that I'm the greatest clubhouse guy I can be really abrasive and arrogant and whatever, but like I was 182 pounds for the first five years of my career and, and somehow was throwing the ball really hard and, and had success and was good in the playoffs. And, and I checked some box through 200 innings. Like I did some things that, that somebody that looks like me probably shouldn't be able to do. Um, and th- there's something there, but there, you know, there's also a reason that Clayton can throw, certain pitches that nobody else in baseball has ever thrown his slider. No one has ever really thrown that pitch. Um, so trying to learn kind of that outlier stuff from him. Yeah. He can tell me he thinks that he does it this way, but like, is my arm slot in the right spot? Do I hold a ball the similar way? Is my wrist position anywhere close? Like then you can shuffle out. Like I'll never do that. Or I think I can figure out how to do exactly this. And uh, Rich Hill was big in that with, with curveball with me, um, certain feelings that, that he created. Uh, I'll tell you one of the weirdest stories ever. My first day in the major leagues, uh, I got called up September, whatever, 6th. And you Darvish walked straight up to me, asked me about my Tommy John in perfect English. Don't let him fool you guys. (laughs) He was like, Hey, my, my hard curveballs, is fine after my Tommy John. My slow one's fine, but the medium one's not very good. He was like, "How do you? How are you throwing? How does your curveball feel?" Huh. But like, that's the thing, right? It's like I had no business telling you, Darvish, how to do anything, right? Like yeah. this guy made a hundred million dollars, and you know, he's now he's won a hundred games in the big leagues after his career in Japan, like, and it's just this guy does this well. Can I go and pick something from him? regardless of, you know, that that's what he's thinking, right? It, he's got a good curveball. Can I pick anything from He had Tommy John, good curveball. I don't care what he's done. And, and so that's that's kind of the beauty of, of our game. And and it's kind of a it was, like for me, that was the coolest moment ever. I was like, number one, why are you asking me this? <laughs> number two, like, I'll try and explain as best I can. Number three, like, go win for us. Like, I'll be sitting in the bullpen. <laughs> Go get him, champ. Um, yeah. yeah, I totally. Wow, that's really cool. And Darvish, I is he the first guy to sign three six year deals? Obviously, he opted out of one, but that's just a crazy yeah. feat to accomplish. A Rod, maybe A Rod had something similar. I think. Yeah, he was on that. There's something similar. with A Rod where he signed two of something or three of something that nobody else had. Yeah, but Darvish just signed his third six year deal. Man, real yeah. quick before we move on to curveballs. Um, Jacob deGrom, it was announced last week. He's undergoing his second Tommy John. Just mentioned Yavaldi real quick. You said he was kind of like, you know, the gold standard of guys that have undergone two TJs you're rehabbing from your second. I'm not sure if you've communicated with deGrom at all. Um, Like, what would your message be to a guy like that who's set to go through that? And obviously we saw raw emotion from him. Yeah, that was was tough. It's hard. you know, I met him at the altar game and stuff a few times. And, and I think the, the big thing is, like, he didn't start pitching until so late in his life. What, what's so wild, like, my Tommy John lasted six, six, seven years. Like, 
his first one, I think, lost a 13, someone was saying the other day. So it, it's hard for me on some thing because, like, this guy's had an unbelievable career on, on a reconstructed ligament, right? And so for me, it's like, what is he doing that, that I didn't do the first time that mine lasted half the time of his? Also, like, I think a lot of that emotion and, and I think every interaction I've had with him, it, it seems like an extremely genuine human is that like, I don't think he's really upset for himself. I think he's mad because he feels like their team has a real chance to do something special this year. Um, you know, I got hurt and, and we have a great team and my emotion was like, all right, I got to do something for a year, but like, fuck, I won't get to pitch in the playoffs. Like that, that's where the emotion comes from. And, and it seems like that's, uh, where it comes from from him and, and my buddies to play over there. Everyone has nothing but good things to say about him. So, um, you know, that, that's my assumption. And, you know, some guys can can get emotional like that and come off extremely selfish. And I, I didn't take it that way, but it's always kind of lingering out there in that like, oh, well, he doesn't get his and, and then other – well, he's already made X amount of money and there's all these kind of – nasty hypotheticals that you can come up with, but I don't think it was that. And, uh, you know, I think the big thing for him is like, whatever you did the first time, man, like you obviously did a pretty good job, like go and get strong and, and figure it out. But, you know, I, I think watching him pitch is some sort of gold standard for, for right-handed starting pitchers now. And, you know, we're talking about LA De, De La Cruz and how easy he makes really hard things look. And I think he's kind of the gold standard for that in terms of, of pitching, right? Looks like he's just kind of standing and throwing and it's 99 and it's really commanded and he does, he checks every box. And, uh, you know, I think in some way him getting a year off is, is kind of a, a blessing in disguise. I think you have to find something, but he's dealt with the shoulder and then the forearm strains and all this and, you know, him not pitching until he was a certain age, like we all talk about his age and can he get in the Hall of Fame? And he's obviously been one of the most dominant guys ever when he's been on the mound. But maybe this year off means he gets a shoulder in a better spot and his elbow stronger. And maybe he can pitch like Verlander until he's 42. And because I think he can be very successful at 94, 95. It, it doesn't have to be 100, um, especially given the experience that he has now. So, um, Maybe he can play till he's 44 now, 43 now, if this thing lasts another six, seven years. Yeah. So, you know, I, obviously none of us want him to be hurt or anybody to be hurt, but um, it seems like he's had a couple of years where there's something going on every year and and maybe we can fix all that up and, and fix that elbow and, and get him for a long time. Okay, another fun one with Bueller. Uh, another bourbon down the hatch. Real quick, want to tell you about So Rare. It's like the perfect blend of fantasy baseball and the digital collectibles as well. We're asking you to do something super simple, and it's going to be really fun. The payoff is totally there. Go to SoRare.com, draft a team, join the Just Baseball League, yep, and you have the opportunity to win some cool shit. You've got the opportunity to win some Just Baseball merch. You've got yep. the opportunity to win MLB TV packages as yep. well. Yep. I mean, dude, that's the thing. So like giveaways are good and this could sound like, hey, ad gimmick, whatever. No, like this is a very fun, really fun thing to play. This is enhanced fantasy baseball. 
Yeah, I got one of my favorite DMs I've gotten in a while <laughs> from somebody. Uh, it was from Nate. He just said, Aram, Aram, Aram. I don't know if I'm more angry that I didn't sign up for So Rare earlier or if I'm angry that I signed up at all. You did not inform me how addictive how addictive it is. Fast forward three weeks, I pay more attention to So Rare than my Dynasty Leagues. Yeah. I've spent way more attention than I ever thought I would. If I end up in divorce court, I'm going to have to come live with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then on a serious note, I love your stuff, which thank you very much, Nate. You're the man. I, I, like That's the thing. That's a big reason why I was excited to work with So Rare is because I knew it was something that I was going to play a ton. Yeah. I was going to have interest in. And that's why I encouraged people to to DM me and I still do with your teams or if you have any questions about it, because it legitimately is fun for me. And I like talking about it. I was just going back and forth with somebody the other day about you know, what they should do with their limited lineup, because that's where you you know buy those cards or you can win them as rewards uh, and plug and play. Should, should I sell this player? Uh, am I selling high at this point? Who should I pick up with, with $8 budget? Uh, should I buy this bundle? I'm happy to help you guys with all of that. To me, it's the same as, as Dynasty in a lot of ways where it's like you own that card for forever unless you want to sell it. So if, if it's somebody that I think is a good pickup, I'll let you know. Uh, like Carrie Carpenter, for example, that's somebody I picked up for $6. I think you should pick him up if you're running limited teams right now too. Uh, we also sent out some JB merch to the top finishers from the last competition. You click the link in our episode description and you are able to join our league for so rare before we wrap up the episode to jack i wanted to give a couple minor league shout outs i know we usually do the prospect report with peter uh on on every other wednesday yeah but luis matos i just wanted to specifically mm -hmm. highlight luis matos of the san francisco giants five home runs in five days which is insane in triple a sacramento which He's 21 years old. I know it's the PCL. It's hitter friendly there. So that might explain the slight uptick in power. This guy hits the ball hard. It's it's 55, almost almost 60. I think he could grow into 60 grade power. He's hitting almost 400 in AAA. He was demolishing baseballs in AA. Matos was one of my favorite prospects going into last year. Was super, super hurt and tried to play through it and just, just didn't look right. I probably jumped off the ship too quickly because of how bad it looked last year. He looks like the guy I thought he was going to be last year. And I'm bringing him up because for those that play dynasty leagues, scoop him up for giants fans. He's your answer in center field. I think this year yeah. in the next month or less, and just for baseball fans in general, you're really going to enjoy watching this guy play. I'm excited about him. Well, I was going to say, not just for dynasty fantasy baseball for legit fantasy mm -hmm. baseball. If mm -hmm. you want somebody to stash, that's probably yep. the guy. How much longer can you justify keep, keeping him down? He's not, he's walking more than he strikes out. He's sitting for power and he plays a good center field. So he and Christian Encarnacion Strand, I think are the next two marquee prospects up. Yep. I, I agree with that. And I wanted to highlight both of those guys. Christian Encarnacion Strand, I think he's sitting like 430 over his last <laughs> 10 games in the red system. That's another guy that's just been absolutely bonkers. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be sure to kind of keep updating because we're getting to that point where a lot of teams might start bumping up their AAA guys yeah. a little bit more frequently. I, I think we've I think, already seen some guys get bumped, but I think we're hitting the super two deadline. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are. So I, I'm excited. I'm really excited. I hope Matos gets a, a crack soon. And I think he will. You're seeing the young guys start to take over in San Francisco, which is good because they are, they've been so old for the last couple of years. Now you, you're seeing Casey Schmidt up there. You're going to see Matos up there instead of Yaskremski. It's going to get younger in San Francisco. Kyle Harrison's starting to kind of put it together a little bit too on the mound for, the, for them. So 
Giants are are, are starting to shore it up a little bit too. It's going to be fun, man. Uh, last thing that I want to hit on with you before we wrap, I wrote that article. It's on JustBaseball.com. I anointed Shane McClanahan, the new best pitcher in baseball. And I've been ready to move off of DeGrom for a good bit now because of the lack of availability. Really shitty situation with him going down with TJ. But I, I think it's time to look at who that new title holder is. And I think that going into this year, if you weren't team DeGrom and I wasn't necessarily team DeGrom, I was team Sandy. Sandy's not pitching like the best pitcher in baseball right now. At the beginning of the year, Spencer Strider was Strider's hit a snag a little bit, eight earned against the Mets, which was crazy. But I called Shane McClanahan the best pitcher in baseball. And real quick, my elevator pitch metric metrically, He's not that good right now compared to 2021 and 2022. He had a better year by the advanced metrics in terms of EVs, in terms of launch, in terms of things like that in 2022 that he did so far this year. While he has taken a step back metrically, Shane McClanahan is 10-1 and with the second-best ERA among qualified starters in all of baseball, and he is an automatic six or seven innings if it feels like two runs or fewer at any point. The other thing that I wanted to point out, his entire arsenal is good. I went digging in this post-COVID world. So since the start of 2021, I found two other examples of guys whose entire arsenal has a negative run value by Baseball Savant. All four pitches of McClanahan's have a negative run value. Justin Verlander last year when he won the Cy Young had a negative run value everywhere. Walker Bueller in 2021 had a negative run value on all six of his pitches. It was nuts. The other guys that I found, Max Freed last year, he had a pitch like at zero. It was a throw-in pitch that run value was at zero. Same with Sandy. He had a throw-in pitch that was right at zero. But all I'm saying is I think McClanahan's my guy. Who else you got? It's funny. So I want to highlight two guys real quick just because I think this is the most fluid conversation humanly possible. Um, I, I really do believe, and this might be a little bit of the homer in me, I think by the time we get to the end of the year again, Sandy Alcantara will be an acceptable answer. I, I really believe that there's been a lot, and I've been diving into this one a little bit more. I think a lot of bad batted ball luck. I think a lot of uh, just just micro like micro mistakes where it's just one inning where things blow up. So I, I do think that there's a legitimate chance he gets back into it. But I was thinking about it, and if I'm going into a season and you're like, you can have one guy at the top of your rotation, and this is through the regular season, through the playoffs, Framber Valdez really deserves to be in this conversation. I don't think he has the flash and domination where we're like, oh, that's the best pitcher in baseball. Yeah. But when you look at what this guy's done over the last two years, it's a 2.680 ERA since the beginning of last year, regular season-wise, a 3.02 FIP, a 2.95 X FIP. He's starting to churn out more and more innings. We see what he does on the postseason stage. It's maybe because of how fluid this has been. He talked about striders blow up. You could make the Kevin Gosman case six earned runs. I think the other day, or it was four, whatever it was four or six. I'm like four and two thirds. Gosman's been, I think the most valuable by F war yeah. over the last two seasons. Uh, or he doesn't walk anybody and he strikes it. Like he's a FIP guy. Yeah. hundred percent. He's a, he's a FIP guy. I'm not going to say merchant, um, but I would say Framber for me, just because I think for an ACE it's, do you ever have that blow up? And he never, he never blows up. Never. It's yeah. unbelievable. So for me, it's it's almost the other way where it's you don't have that, oh, that guy is so dominant, like that's the best pitcher in baseball. But but because there's no drop-off, 
that to me is almost enough. So I'd say Framber is my top dog right now because he just doesn't stop churning out quality starts. And you know the way to my heart with Framber Valdez. I, again, this guy, he had that quality start record, right? It was what, 24 straight starts where it was a quality start, six innings or more, three runs or fewer. So I can totally get behind the Framber thing. Um, you got to throw Strider in there. You got to throw Zach Allen in there right now. Who uh, just got blown up too. <laughs> who just got blown up, man. So it, it's fascinating. Like, there are blow-up starts for everybody, it feels like, except Framber Valdez, and at this yeah. point this year, except Shane McClanahan. So that's what I got for you. And listen, you go to McClanahan and Framber's savant pages, bubbles don't like him. That's why I say, fuck the bubbles. Yeah. I'm in. All right, just baseball show presented by BetMGM. Thank you guys so much. Every link you need is in the show notes. And Peter and I will be back to you, or we'll be back to talk to you tomorrow. 